Welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO. And today we are on the phone with a special guest, someone who I think is one of the best surgeons in the world fighting pancreatic cancer, Dr. Diana Simeone from NYU. Welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Delighted to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, I am super excited. Uh, I think our guests are getting better and better, and uh, this is going to be a great podcast episode for those of you listening at home. So for our audience at home, Dr. Simeone, that don't know who you are, here's your five to ten minutes or two minutes or 30 seconds to share with our audience at home listening uh, your background, who you are, where you started, and what brings you, you know, get, get us fast forward to where you are today at NYU. Sure. So I'm, as uh, as you mentioned, I'm a surgeon, but I would say I equally wear the hat of scientist. I've been uh, working on pancreatic cancer since I was a resident uh, back in the early 90s, and I when I started on faculty, this was at University of Michigan in 1995. I decided to dedicate my career to making advances in pancreatic cancer. There were very few people working on pancreatic cancer at the time around the country, and it seemed to be a clear unmet need. And back then, there, um, you know, you really knew every single person working on pancreatic cancer. And of course, uh, to my great delight, the field has grown. Uh, there are more researchers that have come to the field, and I think uh, that poises us for uh, success. Um, in the future. I recently came to NYU after a long uh, career at University of Michigan to head the Pancreatic Cancer Center. And there is a large-scale commitment at NYU to make uh, a difference in pancreatic cancer. I have set a personal goal for us as a field to have a 50% five-year survival rate within the next 10 years. Here at NYU, and I've been here for about a year, I serve as the director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center and also associate director of our Perimeter Cancer Center with a focus on translational research. My uh, research interests, uh, as I mentioned, are dedicated to pancreatic cancer and pancreatic neoplasms and really span the whole gamut from very basic biology to modeling pancreatic cancer in the lab to developing developing an early detection blood test, and over the last five or six years, really focusing on doing clinical trials in new and more innovative ways. Um, So that's the scoop, and I'm excited to be here in uh, New York, and uh, I think there's a lot of uh, very important things happening in this field that uh, are going to be translatable to patients' really uh, in real time. Awesome, awesome. So now I, I've got a tough question for you, and, and I, I love the, the explanation on the background, and you, and you said something there, said a couple things that I, I took note here. You know, when you started this at the University of Michigan in your residency, there really wasn't anyone studying pancreatic cancer, or like you said, you kind of knew the entire group, and now you look back, there's so many, compared to where we were years ago and to where we are today. But why pancreatic cancer? Was there something personally 
or, you know, I, I ask this question to every person, or I should say every clinician, scientist, oncologist, surgeon that deals with the disease. And well, I always... cancer? Yeah, I, I'm very intrigued yeah, by that. I, I had the opportunity to take care of uh, a number of patients with pancreatic cancer when I was a surgical resident. And, of course, as a surgeon, you see only a relatively small percentage of patients with pancreatic cancer, those that are resectable or perhaps borderline resectable up front. But I was just uh, flabbergasted with the lack of um, knowledge about how pancreatic cancer works, uh, no treatments, uh, people getting a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and essentially getting a death sentence. And it was just amazing to me. It just seemed like a neglected problem. And and as an academician where you, you know, learned how to do research in the, in the clinical setting, it does seem like it is our obligation to take on this responsibility to, to help make advances and solve this problem. Uh, patients are depending on us. I think as a scientist who sees patients and operates on pancreatic cancer, you have a very unique perspective uh, about the disease. I have been personally impacted because I've taken care of thousands of patients with pancreatic cancer. I also see patients who are at high risk for the disease because of heritable reasons or they have benign um, lesions of the pancreas that might undergo malignant degeneration. So it's very, very personal. I get to know my patients very well. You you go through all of this with your patients, and it just um, puts an overlay of a sense of urgency to the problem that um, that is very unique by by working with patients every day. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. And I, I just have... You know, I, I appreciate you sharing with the audience listening at home. Um, you know, I think it does take a special person to deal with this disease, whether you're a surgeon or an oncologist or a scientist, because the odds are stacked. And I'm always very curious. I mean, my motivation clearly, you know, from the, the loss of my dad, um, you know, but I always am curious about why scientists and doctors and surgeons um, get into the field. And, uh, well, I, I appreciate it all, Dr. Simeone, and we're glad you're on this team, let's put it that way, uh, for pancreatic cancer. Okay, for uh, to, to dive into a little bit of the science of this disease, uh, some of the folks listening at home, and we've got a, a wide range of people who listen to the Project Purple podcast, some of them who know what pancreatic cancer is and others who uh, are hearing it for the first time, possibly. Why... In your professional opinion, is pancreatic cancer so, and I've got some words written down here, and I'll start with probably the, the, the first, which is difficult, my second is violent, and the third is evil. It is evil. Um, it's evil because it's very hard to detect early. Um, the pancreas lies in the back of the abdomen. It's not easy to get at with a scope or by a physical examination. And it, it, it does tend to spread early uh, for reasons that we don't completely understand. So I think relative to other tumor types, um, it will spread to other organs when the, the cancer still appears to be contained. Um, in fact, the, the statistic that always is the one that's the most um, compelling about how different this cancer is, 
is at least based on the treatments that we have nowadays, if you have a stage one pancreatic cancer and we remove it with an operation, the chance of it coming back is about 70%. And if you remove a stage one, any other kind of cancer, the chance of it coming back is less than 5%, maybe just 1% to 2%. So that tells us there's something unique about pancreatic cancer. And it's very important that the biology of pancreatic cancer be studied. Um, uh, there needs to be a focus on that. There had been a movement afoot um, uh, to try to bunch cancers together and say if we, we understand one cancer, we can understand them all. But there are some unique aspects of pancreatic cancer that uh, warrant study. It doesn't mean we can't learn from some other cancer types, but I think we need a, need a dedicated workforce uh, really focusing on pancreatic cancer. The other thing is pancreatic cancer, again, for reasons we don't understand well, is particularly resistant to the therapies that we use to treat other cancers, chemotherapy, radiation, and of course, in the new era, immunotherapy, where we hear of pretty dramatic responses in other cancer types. Even cancers have been pretty tough to treat, like lung cancer, advanced melanoma. But so far, we have not quite cra uh, cracked the code on how to best deploy immunotherapy to treat pancreatic cancer. That doesn't mean we won't be able to, but we just have to use some different strategies to think about it. We probably have to pre-treat the pancreatic cancer to set it up to be more responsive to immunotherapy. Well, there's, you know, there's amazing, there's an amazing effort, right, across the board with a lot of institutions. I mean, we've been doing this eight years, and um, I think, you know, Dr. Simeone, we just, and you, I mean, I know you didn't say this outright, but I, we just don't understand the disease well enough from a biological standpoint. Would you agree or disagree with that? I agree, and, and I think one thing that has really been lacking is to deeply study every patient, and that's an area we're really focusing on. There are very important model systems that have been developed to try to understand how pancreatic cancer arises, uh, what are the genes and uh, alterations that contribute to its biology, but I'm not sure all of those systems really completely help us understand what's going on in patients. And so we have really embarked upon making sure that we really study every patient, and that means we have to get tissue. It's been, uh, that's been a limiting factor in pancreatic cancer because the pancreas is kind of tough to get at. And people in the field have thought that patients would really not be willing to undergo biopsies of their pancreas um, for us to understand better who responds to what treatment, why some treatments that um, we thought might have worked, why they didn't work. And so I think we're we're entering a new era now where we're going to be really studying uh, human pancreatic cancer biology, which I think is going to unlock a lot of keys. That's fascinating. Um, so related to your practice, being a surgeon, now, and just to shift gears a little bit here, but stay within what we were talking about. So the Whipple, which is for those of people at home, and, and I'd love for you to describe what the Whipple procedure is. And someone actually, I was on a podcast on Friday, uh, on a CrossFit podcast. It's actually uh, an Olympic lifting, uh, an Olympian who has a, a podcast. 
And he had asked the question um, because he had done some research. He said, so, okay, explain the Whipple. So I'd love to hear for our, uh, and also for our audience at home what the Whipple surgery is. So the Whipple operation is not something to be afraid of. It is um, an operation that is a little bit complicated, but now there are uh, certainly a wide number of very well-trained surgeons uh, around the country that are capable of performing the operation with uh, low morbidity and mortality. Uh, it is important. Uh, it is an operation that you need to make sure that um, you have performed by someone that has extensive expertise in doing them, though, because uh, in, in expert hands, uh, the complication rate can definitely go up. The Whipple procedure is used to treat um, tumors in the head of the pancreas, and the head of the pancreas uh, is uh, in an area where it's really kind of a busy highway. There are lots of important structures that are nearby or going uh, through the head of the pancreas, and that's why the operation is a little bit complicated. The head of the pancreas um, is kind of nestled in the first part of the intestine called the duodenum, and they share a common blood supply. And so we have to take out the first part of the duodenum with the head of the pancreas when we do the Whipple procedure. The bile duct, which drains bile from the liver, the bottom portion of that also goes through the head of the pancreas, and we take that out with the operation. That is, in fact, the reason why a lot of patients who develop pancreatic cancer develop jaundice or yellowing of the eyes because the bile duct gets narrowed or squeezed by the tumor um, in the head of the pancreas. There are also... Uh, some important blood vessels in the area, and these tumors tend to make a lot of scar tissue, what we call a desmoplastic reaction. So sometimes we might have to take a tumor out and resect um, some key blood vessels. Um, probably the one that's most commonly involved is called the superior mesenteric vein. That's kind of a more advanced um, Whipple procedure, uh, if you will. But in general, uh, the Whipple procedure, is, which is also called a pancreaticoduodenectomy, is taking out the head of the pancreas, the duodenum, and the bottom portion of the bile duct. When that is all taken out, we have to reconstruct things. And that means we have to sew back the remainder pancreas to the intestine so pancreas juice can drain in. We also reconnect the bile duct and then we reconnect uh, the stomach. So if there's a reconstruction part after the tumor is taken out uh, to make three new connections. Each part is not that complicated. It's just a whole assembly or orchestra of moves that get put together. And the average Whipple operation um, can be as long as six, uh, excuse me, four to six hours. So they are not quick operations. They can take a little bit of time. That being said, the hospital stay on average is about six days um, to recover uh, back to a normal state. I tell patients it's usually about two to three months, and people can definitely get back to normal quality of life after a Whipple procedure. Now, not to get super technical with our audience, and for those listening at home, that don't know this, the pancreas sits very close to the back of the, well, the, the back of the, the stomach, closer to the spine, correct? It lies right over the uh, upper part of the lumbar spine, yeah. L, right across L2. Um, so it's really way in the back there. 
So the timing, and, and, and uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Dr. Simeone, the timing when we say four to six hours compared to like, you know, my mom, my mom had breast cancer, uh, 16, and she had uh, a double mastectomy, and you know, you know, the breasts are on the surface. It's it's a it's a serious surgery, but a little bit more easier um, because of where the pancreas sits. Does the fact that you have to kind of move everything around or take stuff out uh, increase the amount of time, or is it just more the the complications, as you said, the complexity? I should say, not the complications, but the complexity of removing tissue. You know, part of the the uh, the intestines there, the gallbladder, the bile duct, possibly. Um, is that more the time, or is it more to get to that area and just make sure everything? It's both. So it's a deeper exposure. And there is much more dissection um, than what we required with, a, say, a, doing a colon resection or doing a mastectomy. Uh, so it's it's a, a more involved operation. There are lots of critical blood vessels in the area, the artery that um, supplies all the blood to the liver, the artery that supplies all the blood to the intestines. These are all nearby. So there's a lot of careful dissection that takes place. Why has, now the Whipple has been the same surgery since what, like the early 50s, I think, since the Whipple was kind of named and created? Yeah, it has, but I would say there have been innumerable refinements, and uh, not only on the technical and surgical end, but also how um, uh, how we take care of patients afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, all these small refinements over time have led to a much safer operation. Um, in high-volume centers like ours, uh, the uh, 30-day mortality rate should be less than 1%. Um, the, you know, it's very uncommon that we have to do a blood transfusion for this kind of operation nowadays, while in the past that was much more common. Uh, because uh, surg- uh, surgeons that commonly do this operation uh, do a lot of them, um, you've seen about every kind of variation of anatomy or, or you know, unusual presentation uh, that's out there. Um, you become very facile in do the, doing these operations. And with minimal blood loss, patients recover more quickly. Uh, we also realize some of the things that used to be done in the past, like leaving in a nasogastric tube for a prolonged period of time, we don't really need to do that. We start feeding people earlier after the operation. Um, these are all things that help facilitate recovery. We usually get people up and out of bed the day after surgery, yeah. uh, up and walking around. Yeah, I remember what my dad, my dad had his had a Whipple, and I know they, they got him up pretty quickly. Um, you know, all things considered, you know, with the major surgery that he had had. Um, well, that's kind of fascinating because I've always, you know, and, and if you think about it out loud, I don't think there's a way to, I mean, I know some surgeons will do them robotically and, you know, there's a school of thought about, you know, the healing process from a robotic Whipple is a lot uh, quicker than, you know, the traditional uh, type surgery. Um, but, yeah, when you really think about it, um, you know, it's a hard... I think the verdict's still out on yeah. that one. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I agree with you because I have seen some data on that as well. And I, and I think, though, when you when you think about, 
you know, and that's where I hope our audience at home, when you think about the anatomy, and I've seen videos of this, and I've seen, uh, you know, other groups, you know, go out into public and say to people, like, hey, do you know where the pancreas is? And people are like, yeah, it's down in front, like where your kidneys are. And it's like, no. But when if you really take a step back and think about, like, where the pancreas sits and how much of a challenge that I'm sure that is from a surgical standpoint, it's not like you can just you know, needle biopsy that either uh, as well, easily as well, because you've got all these organs uh, there as well. So the complexities of the, the surgery itself um, create a challenge. You know, I would think in, in my mind, you know, and just, you know, so a lot yeah, has... I mean, the learning curve is you need to do at least 50 uh, to begin to develop some competency. Um, and so, you, you know, Folks that do just a couple a year, that's probably, you know, not the optimal setting to, to have this operation. Yeah, you want to have it done um, uh, at a place where a lot are done and there's a lot of expertise. And it's, not again, not just the surgical part. It's the post-op care. It's, um, you know, all the things that go along with uh, taking care of a um, complicated pancreas patient. What would be, in, in the medical field right now, Dr. Simeone, and this is a great point because we talk to a lot of patients and we always try to get them to the high-volume centers. What in medical terms or in medical numbers is a high-volume center considered? Is it 50 cases a year? Is it 100 cases? Is it 200? Is there is there is a definition or, or a number? Uh, there's some definitions out there. Um, I, I, uh, I don't know what they all are, but I think in general you would want to – uh, see a surgeon who does at least 20 a year. Um, uh, I've typically been doing about 75 of these a year for the last uh, 12 or 15 years. Um, uh, not all for pancreatic cancer, but for you know a variety of pancreatic uh, neoplasms. Um, from a hospital standpoint, you want to have a center that's doing at a minimum 50 a year. I think those are reasonable numbers. Um, uh, like I said, this is not an operation that you want to have done by somebody that, you know, does two or three a year. Um, that's in a, a setting that's just not that familiar with, with the care of these patients. I, I can't agree with you more, and I will just say for the audience listening at home, when my dad went down that road, I remember sitting in the surgeon's office, and he was a generalist. He wasn't a specialist. And if there's anything that I could redo, if there was a redo, um, you know, is I, I would have taken my dad to a high-volume center because I remember sitting there, and I asked that question, Dr. Simeone. I said, so, Dr. Smith, and that wasn't his name, um, I said, so how many of these do you do a year? And he goes, oh, I do about one a month. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounded like a lot. And then when I got into this, you're like, well, you know, centers, some centers do that, you know, some surgeons do that in two weeks, you know, or, or three weeks in a matter of a month, you know. So uh, I, I will say to the audience at home, and sometimes I know with transportation, you know, uh, but there's groups out there that will help facilitate that. Um, and help navigate that through that process. But uh, really, if you can get to a high-volume center, do what you can to get there because I, I think it, it, it's a life-changer. It's a game-changer. I think even aside from the clinical care, which is, of course, the most important, centers that have a dedicated multidisciplinary clinic for the care of patients with pancreatic cancer 
centers that are committed to doing research to try to understand pancreatic cancer better and that are at the cutting edge of clinical trials. These are all really important things. The only way we're going to change what happens for patients with pancreas cancer is we need to do more research and we need to put patients on clinical trials. And right now, the last numbers I saw, about 4% of patients with pancreatic cancer in this country go on a clinical trial. And that's just not enough to really push the needle and get uh, new, more effective therapies to patients. So staying on that note, in your professional opinion, why is it so low? Is it because of access to the trials or is it because they don't know? I think there's a uh, it's multifactorial. One is I think there's a lot of nihilism um, out there in the community that someone has pancreatic cancer and nothing can be done. And um, that's actually uh, not true. Uh, two, I would say that the way we've done clinical trials hasn't been as um, efficient and effective as uh, it could be. And in fact, I, uh, there's, there are now major efforts going on to do a reboot or a redesign on how we do clinical trials. And we can talk about that a little bit more if you'd like. It also has been hard to um, get adequate funding uh, for pancreatic cancer research and clinical trials. Um, th that has slowly improved, but when I started doing research on pancreatic cancer, something like 1% or 2% of the NCI budget was directed to pancreatic cancer research. Uh, there was a lot of work to make the um, to try to turn that around, um, uh, to get, put more uh, emphasis on pancreatic cancer research, and, and that has improved. Uh, but because, I, I, frankly, I think because so, uh, so many people died, there wasn't a large advocacy group for pancreatic cancer, um, as you might have for some other cancers, and so it really kind of hung in the shadows. Now, if you fast forward to, you know, the mid-90s, pancreatic cancer is getting more attention. Why? One, it's actually increasing in frequency, um, probably related to the increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes in our country. Two, we've made advances in other cancers. If you look at breast cancer and colon cancer, simple, you know, increased use of colonoscopy and mammography had made, have made significant um, uh, advances in, in those diseases. We don't have a test like that yet um, for pancreatic cancer. So I think just it's really multifactorial, but having more clinical trials, patients and families being advocates for their family members, really going to centers that have uh, strong, dedicated efforts to pancreatic cancer. Um, we've also been working with the pharmaceutical industry to try to uh, get them on board to be more interested and willing to provide new therapeutics for pancreatic cancer. And uh, most recently, we've been working with the leadership of the FDA to look at the process by which we do clinical trials for pancreatic cancer to see if it can be streamlined and, and again, made more efficient so we can get um, things to approval more quickly for patients. Yeah, I, I love all that, and I, we just need to do more of it, right? And that's like the, the million-dollar question or the $20 million question is how do we move this needle on this? And there's a lot of moving parts, um, but for our listeners at home and especially those families, I, I think you know, really getting to 
one of those high volume centers and you know and, and and it does make it a little bit easier if you're in a major major metropolitan area like New York where we've got NYU and we've got some other partners there um that are doing some fascinating things um so um I do have a question going back to the Whipple that I wanted to bring up and um I think this is an important one and here at Project Purple Dr. Simeone, we get um, we have our patient aid program, so we get a lot of families that call in looking for assistance financially, and and we do get a lot of questions about treatment and care, and we send out blankets to everyone who uh, we know that are battling pancreatic cancer as well, and we hear this often from the blanket recipients as well, and people who have metastatic disease that go in get chemotherapy treatment. And then there's always that hope that they will become surgical. And I know, I think I was at um, APA in Boston, was it last year or the year before? And I know there was... Last year, yeah. Yeah, it was last year. And there was I think there was a group from Europe that presented and talked about how they were doing Whipples, um, even with metastatic disease. Um, and I think the jury was still out if that was, um, you know, effective in treatment. Um, and I... I, I I sat in on it, and I know one of the the, the comments was uh, from the presenter, I, th- I believe, and don't quote me on this, was, you know, the thought process was by eliminating the main tumor, then you can attack the metastatic disease. Um, what are your thoughts about that? And I know usually the, the school of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, has been if someone has metastatic disease, the Whipple's really not, uh, you know, people aren't really eligible for the Whipple because the disease is present in other organs and why put the patient through the surgery, um, you know, through the, you know, the complications that may occur or, you know, the healing process and not being able to receive chemotherapy while they are healing from that surgery. Yeah, so I would say the data at this point does not support uh, doing a Whipple in patients with metastatic disease. And there have been studies that have shown there's no benefit in that setting. Uh, so in that regard, I think at least with the therapies we have in hand today, pancreatic cancer is different than perhaps some other cancers. And an example I'll give you is colon cancer that is metastasized to the liver. There, um, in, in, in certain patients, there is a distinct survival benefit to doing a liver resection for metastatic colon cancer to the liver. That has not really been seen generally for pancreatic cancer. Now, that being said, uh, I always tell a patient, uh, I never say never because sometimes we have unique situations, and this is the value of having a multidisciplinary tumor board where we will have some patients that, for example, might have a very profound response to therapy, and uh, they might have a liver lesion or two that go away, and it really stays away for a long period of time. And in the absence of um, any other residual disease, we might consider doing local procedure. Again, that's uncommon. We also have some patients that we might have done a Whipple in, and they will then present uh, years down the road with one or two liver lesions. And uh, with treatment, if there's stability of disease and no other evidence of metastasis, we uh, will consider either resecting or ablating uh, local uh, uh, liver lesions. Um, One uh, interesting uh, exception is when pancreatic cancer spreads to the lungs. 
It does seem for pancreatic tumors that metastasize to the lungs, and that's about 10% of patients, that those patients have more favorable biology, and so we do tend to be a little bit more aggressive in those patients. We always do systemic treatment up front and then um, follow um, the course of the disease, but if things remain stable and there's an, uh, an ability to remove the pancreatic tumor and one or two lung lesions uh, to have R0 disease, we do consider that and select patients. I do think as therapies become more effective and we have um, a number of uh, new therapies that are coming down the pike that have a lot of uh, uh, exciting activity, that the situation may change. Um, we may render pancreatic cancer to be more like some of these other cancers where we do consider uh, doing a, a, a resection of metastasis along with the primary. But at right now, at this point in time, I would not say in general that's a good approach. And, and as you pointed out, that does prevent patients from getting systemic therapy, which is what they really need, right? Um, if you have an operation, you have to recover, and it's usually at least six weeks um, before you can get um, uh, treatment. Um, so those are points to consider. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right on. I appreciate you uh, sharing real reasons behind it and your opinion on that, which I, I think is spot on. And I know uh, at that conference, I know there was a lot of discussion afterward uh, that I heard from a variety of people just uh, from walking around the halls. And, you know, I, I think the one thing that you also said is there's a lot going on and that gets me really excited. And so, um, you know, for those people home listening that are fighting this, I, I've always said like, it's not about getting knocked down because we're all going to get knocked down. And this disease is, unlike any, it's going to keep knocking you down. It's just a matter of getting back up and staying in the game, you know, to use a sports analogy. You know, you're not going to win every game, but hopefully, you know, you, you win the Super Bowl or you win that big game, the one that matters. Yeah. I do use this phrase, which is just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's important uh, for our audience to realize that you also have to really take into account um, what the data shows, what the experience is, to try to make a sound judgment. Um, if you have any concern about um, the information you're getting, it's always good to get a second opinion. Um, when someone is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it is not an emergency situation where you have to start treatment the next day. Um, really gather up critical information first to make sure you go down the right path. Why do some, and you know, that's a great point there. And, and uh, hopefully our listeners at home, if the, you know, for those that are, maybe this is, you know, the first time that they are learning about pancreatic cancer, and hopefully the majority of them never have to go through, through it. But if they do, uh, that's an important point. And I always hear this from families you know, when they call in and they're looking for that second opinion, but then they don't go to that second opinion, you know, we, we open a door, we get them into into a center of excellence because they've scheduled to have their port put in the next day and then they're starting chemotherapy on like that third day. Is that a, do you think that's an issue? And, and I've always said this, Dr. Simeone, that, you know, we are educating the general public, but then we also have to do a better job of educating your peers 
and not not pointing out or or picking on any one individual but whether it's general practitioners cuz usually right who who does the patient go to first if they if they're not feeling well they're not going to call a surgical oncologist right unless they have a connection or a friend right they're going to go to their right. primary care and you know that i always say that primary care is really that first point of contact and that's who we've got to kind of do a better job you know as a whole all the groups and everyone that's involved in this space to make them more aware of what those symptoms are so that they can then guide that patient through that. But I, I, I don't know if that's a, um, I, I would hope it's not a business thing because there is a business to all of this, right, to uh, to have these patients start treatments, unfortunately. Um, but I, I just, I would hope that the folks listening at home really take to heart what you just said, which is get a second opinion. You don't have to rush into chemotherapy, but there's always, there seems like there's a sense of urgency with everyone that calls us, and I get it, there's like panic in the disco, um, you know, that, you know, they're they're trying to figure out, like, oh my God, this is pancreatic cancer, what do I do, I got to get treatment right away, like, I can't sit around and wait, um, so I, I hope people really listen to what you just said about getting a second opinion and, and not necessarily rushing into treatment right away. Yeah, I see a lot of um, things that, uh, first of all, the biggest delay is, is lack of recognition that someone might have pancreatic cancer. Right. Uh, unexplained abdominal pain, weight loss, new onset diabetes, especially associated with weight loss. Um, we'll often see patients that have had symptoms for months and it hasn't been recognized. Um, and then importantly, before anything gets done, a very high-quality thin-cut imaging should be done a pancreas protocol CT scan, and a chest CT so that the patient can be properly staged. A lot of patients are off getting stents and procedures before we even have the proper imaging to stage the patient, and that can result in things not quite being done the way they need to be done. Someone might get a plastic stent put in when really they needed a metal stent. Mm -hmm. Someone will have gotten a, a quick fine needle aspirate and not enough cells for us to do sequencing or to get enough tissue to do some other things that we would like to do to better understand the patient's tumor. So really um, taking a pause and a deep breath, really gathering your information and start, start off by getting uh, the proper imaging so that things can be staged properly and, and uh, the sequences can be done correctly. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I mean, there's no rush. And, uh, you know, it's hard, though, sometimes to tell people to take a step back and just kind of, you know, I think everyone, I, what I always recommend to families is, you know, if you have a spouse that's battling or been diagnosed, always bring a third person, um, you know, if the spouse is married and, and has the ability to do that. And that's where, from my own personal experience, my dad was diagnosed, you know, my mom was wearing, you know, my dad's wearing, I'm going to die, or, you know, how am I, you know, what's going to happen to me, all this other stuff. My mom is wearing, like, you know, worrying about my dad, and they're not listening to the doctor. They're not listening to one thing anyone is saying. And then I was there, uh, fortunately, to listen and take everything in and then kind of, 
take a time out after and you know talk about it and and have kind of some clarity with it um not everyone has that opportunity or that you know has a third person that they can rely on but you know if you don't i think you just need to kind of be patient with it and like you said i go for a second opinion and really think things through yeah and i'm not advocating people wait weeks to be no. seen and in fact we have a policy that no patient wait, ever waits more than one week to be seen. I just think when you have a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, you shouldn't be put on hold to wait to see um, a team. But I'm just saying it doesn't need to happen, you know, in the, the next day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we actually initiated this, uh, I think, pretty cool program when I was at Michigan and, and, and uh, planned to do so here called My Video, where we would see the patient and spend 45 minutes an hour with a new patient and then we would take a laptop and I would ask the patient if it was okay if I summarized the visit and I would videotape myself giving a summary of the visit and then the patient um, if they uh, provided their email they could access that video clip um, and it was private and it was theirs but they could share it with family members and look at it again to help digest the information and the, that was very um, comforting to patients to be able to be able to do exactly what you said is to really understand what was said because when you walk in the doctor's office and you hear uh, that you know you have pancreatic cancer, everything else um, um, uh, becomes a blur. Oh yeah, that's really cool. That that's fascinating that you guys did that. Well, I I hope you guys uh, continue to do that practice and and maybe some of your colleagues across the country if they're listening will do the same because uh, i think that's critically important and i i you know i preach that to everyone who calls in when they ask like what do i do and i said you know what bring a third person if you can a son a daughter a neighbor uh to your appointments because i, I think it's important and um adds clarity and you know they're like a deer in headlights so that that's really really cool stuff all right, Di- uh, Doctor. I keep trying to call you Diane, but you can call me Diane. Uh, I'm going to call you Doctor Simeone. We're going to keep this professional here. So, million dollar, or this is the blank question, not million dollar question. And you said something before. And I'm going to go back to you. You said hopefully in five years, we have a 50% survival for five years. How do we do this? Like, how do we get there? clinical trials, and we won't have time to talk about it today, but I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about Precision Promise. It's a new clinical trial platform for uh, pancreatic cancer that I think is going to help pave the way there. Uh, Early detection, we're working very hard on developing an early detection blood test. In fact, for high-risk individuals, we're now embarking upon an international study that we're helping to coordinate to try to validate an early detection blood test. We are recommending that all patients with pancreatic cancer get germline testing. Somewhere between 10 and 12% of patients are going to have a germline mutation that might not only impact how we treat that patient, but has implications for family members. Um, uh, that's a new area uh, that we've really been pushing. We've been doing that for about the last uh, two years, and so we're identifying people at risk. So part of the equation is going to figure out who is at elevated risk out there and how can we mitigate that risk. And for our listeners at home, 
germline testing is a genetic test. So we're talking about families. It's a blood test. Yeah, blood test, but that's we're talking about genetics here. So BRCA1, BRCA2, and there's a couple other that we know now. Um, and this was from, I, I believe, was MSK doing this? Did they release the study recently? Or there was a couple of groups. the impact study, which was sequencing with um, germline analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a research collaboration with Myriad where we've yeah. been uh, giving uh, free germline testing to all patients with pancreatic cancer. We've been doing that for about two years. We had... Uh, 13.7% of patients that had a germline mutation, even without a family history that would be suggestive of a heritable risk. So now we are pushing to have new guidelines made so that insurance companies will pay for that for all pancreatic cancer patients. So that's something we're working very hard on. And people should understand that there are certain treatment protocols that work really well um, when we do know that people are uh, or have these specific genetic mutations, correct, Dr. Simeone? It's, it's true. In fact, we have unique clinical trials for BRCA mutant pancreatic cancer patients, and uh, these tumors are very uh, different um, than other pancreatic cancers. They respond very uniquely to different drugs. This is a large area of research we have going on right now in collaboration with some of our colleagues at Sheba University in Israel. Uh, So that's why we think that everyone should have germline testing. Um, It's not, it it is important for family members, but it can be very important for the patient. And there are other mutations, germline mutations, that we're going to develop personalized therapies for. Right now we have a large program for ATM germline uh, mutant pancreatic cancer. Uh, A lot of the germline mutations are actually in genes that regulate DNA damage signaling and repair. Uh, So there's a family of those, and and those genes are mutated in about a quarter of pancreatic cancer, so that's an intense area of research. This is all really, really exciting stuff, and I am... uh... I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt here because we didn't leave enough time to get to this. But as you said, we are going to have you again on our Project Purple podcast in the future, and we'll dive in deeper into clinical trials and what's going on. My last question, and I know you've got an appointment, so we want to keep this on time. What really excites you about this space? I think um, a big part of advancing things is not only all the people that are working on pancreas cancer, but just want to highlight how collaborative our research and clinical community is. We're all working together, and I think a big advance is just how we cooperate and coordinate ourselves to um, share information, uh, to not work in silos, and to leverage that strength of our community pulled together to um, uh, be able to then uh, meet with the head, you know the leadership of the FDA. That didn't happen until we organized ourselves together. Now we have a farmer consortium because we've organized ourselves as a community. We have a lot more strength and power by working together. And that is a very exciting part um, to the solving this problem. Well, it's all strength in numbers and you know one person 
can only do so much, but then you add all these other groups, and, you know, we're part of that World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition, and I know we've partnered with so many of the partners throughout the world, you know, to raise awareness, and I think that's what we have to do. You hit it right on, you know, the nail right on top of the head, you know, if we continue to collaborate and work with each other, science, pharma, FDA, government, um, you know, the rest of the groups, which, you know, everyone is doing, um, we, we hopefully will start to see major advances in the disease that will benefit patients. Um, so it's awesome stuff. And so, Dr. Simeone, last, for our, fam, uh, for our people listening at home, and this is really critical, um, where can they find you? So if there are family members listening to this and something that you said uh, really struck struck them and they want to reach out, what's the best way of them to get in touch with you? I know you just recently joined Twitter, which is awesome to have you on there. I'm excited to have you on Twitter now because I know there's a, there's a large uh, contingent of your colleagues throughout the country that are on Twitter. And it, Twitter's been, I think, a great way to kind of spread the awareness, not that we want doctors and surgeons and oncologists on Twitter 24-7, but I think there's times when uh, when it's really cool to see everyone tweeting about pancreatic cancer on certain days and certain occasions. But So to get back, to wh- what's the best way people can get in touch with you? Um, well, we have a multidisciplinary, uh, we have our pancreatic cancer center here at NYU and multidisciplinary clinics, certainly if anyone wants to be uh, seen in the clinic, uh, you can just go to our webpage and uh, like I said, we see patients right away, there's no wait. Um, you can also email me, uh, Diane Simeone at nyumc.org. Uh, um, I'm pretty accessible and I'm very committed uh, uh, to this disease and helping patients. And we're all in this together, my friend. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for your time, for carving out some time. I know you're a busy, busy person, and uh, I know your schedule is full. And uh, we appreciate all that you do for the entire pancreatic cancer community and uh, all that you're helping us to do here at Project Purple. We're excited for the future. I know the future is bright, and we hope to have you back on as a guest at some point in the future as we delve more into maybe the clinical trials and what's being done, and uh, this has been awesome. I I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you again for all that you do, Dr. Simeone. Uh, Great to be able to talk to your community, and uh, thanks so much for having me on. 